Genesis chapter 16, we're picking up with the story of Hagar and Ishmael. We're picking up with the story of the Lord's grace upon humanity through the descendants of Abraham. And ultimately, Isaac is the, the vessel of grace to mankind, but the Lord has a plan that involves Hagar and Ishmael as well. And so we will consider this today. We'll see how far we get, but I, I'm fairly well prepared to get through Genesis 16, 17, and we'll see after that. Let's pick up here. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go to my maid, perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. After Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, So he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren." And she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And we'll stop there for now and look at chapter 16 before moving to 17. We've already covered this to some extent. I'll try to avoid some of the details that we covered before. As we looked in the past at Abram's family life and said it was not necessarily a family life to emulate, but there are lessons to be learned therein. And so let us learn yet again, from Holy Scripture, and its account of an imperfect life. Abram is not under the grace of God because he is a perfectly righteous man. Abram is, even right now, under the grace of God and in the presence of God, as he was then, historically, by faith. And faith alone, not his works. 
And so we have Abram, we have Sarai, we have the barren condition of Sarai's womb. We have Sarai desperate to provide an heir. And so Sarai comes up with this wonderful plan of providing her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, uh, to become Abram's wife to provide an heir. That quickly goes wrong, of course, as Hagar conceives and she immediately despises her mistress, her master, so to speak, as the angel referred to her as your mistress in verse 9. And we need to think that through just a bit. Sarai was an older woman. You might even say an old woman. In fact, soon the scriptures are going to call her an old woman. We try to avoid that in polite society, but God's just blatantly honest there. She is past the years of normal childbearing, and she offers up her maidservant Hagar very likely because she is young and fertile. And so you can see the situation there and how quickly things would change and how important suddenly Hagar would feel as the mother of the heir. And now scripture says she was made a wife. And so she may feel like she's now the first lady in the home and in Abraham's little kingdom. And that, of course, creates tension quickly, tension that Sarai brings to Abram's attention. And Abram says, do as you wish. Your will be done with this maid servant. And Sarai is harsh with Hagar. Verse 6 says, Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her presence. Verse 7, now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur, And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? I want to speak to our woke sentiments just a moment here and perhaps even our feminist sentiments here. Our current form of government, our current society is not the only form of government and only form of societal structure that has ever existed on the planet. Uh, Do I very much appreciate America? Do I very much appreciate the modern world? Uh, Do I very much appreciate the elevation of women in so many ways in our modern world? I do. Do I very much appreciate the eradication, by and large, of slavery in the world, and certainly slavery in the United States? Absolutely. And yet, let us not judge other governments or other cultures through our current eyes looking back at history and thus be in danger of judging God. And there's a whole woke movement in the church, there's a whole feminist movement in the church uh, that looks to scripture and quickly judges not just Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or any of the other patriarchs or early church, even the pastoral epistles, uh, right, for limiting, limiting women holding them back from the full use of their spiritual gifts, not letting them be pastors. You see, when we are slaves to our current worldview and our current societal mores and and values, 
instead of slaves to Christ, do loss of Christ, then we begin to pass errant judgment, both upon our forefathers in the faith and God himself. And so we need to guard ourselves from that and know that God ordained that Israel would become a slave nation in Egypt for Israel's good. And so that Israel would become a nation because when Israel went to Egypt, there was not a nation, but a nation grew there essentially in in the belly of the largest, most powerful nation on the planet. And the Lord brought great blessing through that period of hundreds of years of slavery. He created the nation known as Israel, which is a blessing, of course, to all of mankind. And so the Lord's ways are above our ways. And, and while I love freedom and I want you to have freedom and I love the Constitution that I believe God has providentially given us to establish freedom uh, for the sake of serving Christ and magnifying His name in the earth, the Lord and His work in the earth, His work of redemption, it, are not dependent upon our U.S. Constitution or the American way of life that we love and we appreciate. But don't love it so much that you judge God through the lens of your current government, your current experience in your current society. And, and don't love your present reality so much that you despise those who lived in a different society with different values. All that to say, um, this was not sin to have a maidservant. I don't think it was sin for Sarai to suggest that the maidservant become a wife and thus, in a sense, a surrogate provider of an heir. It never says that it's sin. When the angel goes to find Hagar, the angel doesn't say, oh, Hagar, you know, poor Abram and Sarai, they're just not enlightened. They're not woke yet. They don't know. Hopefully they'll figure it out you know, you just go your merry way. No, the angel specifically says, uh, Hagar, Sarai's maid. Where have you come from and where are you going? Does the angel not know? The angel knows. But the angel's sent by God. And just like when God came to the garden, God said, Adam, Adam, where are you? You know, God knew where Adam was. The angel knows the situation and what's going on. He didn't happen to find Hagar out there in the wilderness. God sent the angel as his messenger. And part of the message is right there. Hagar, Sarai's maid. Hey, that's who you are. That's where you belong. Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. We would consider that a slave relationship. And we must see that that God is saying, look, you need to go back. You need to go back. Jesus came to set us free from eternal slavery to Satan and sin and death. He did not come, you'll note in the New Testament, to immediately set all slaves free. Now, the consistent application of the law of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ resulted in what? The eradication of slavery in time. But that's not the primary mission. 
changing culture, changing governmental structure, and freeing us even on a personal level from subjugation to other human beings, that is not the primary mission of God, not Old Testament or New Testament. And at times, God has used subjugation of nations and individuals for the good of those nations and those individuals. And we need to think that through. If the Lord gives America what it deserves, we're going to enter into a time of subjugation. We're on the precipice of it now. And He will not have wronged us. Now, tyrants will have wronged us. They're accountable, of course, for their sins. And they will have wronged the constitution that God has given us. But we need to be careful the judgments that we pass because they quickly pass from, say, Abraham and Sarai, and maybe even that angel, what's he talking about? Directly then to God. And if we're not careful, we we end up resenting God's order for His church, God's order for home, God's order universally. And everything gets out of order because we let society dictate what we feel is right or wrong instead of God dictating And hear me, this is what's right. God. God is right. If God does it, it's right. If God commands it, it's right. If it is God, it's right. There is no standard of right and wrong outside of God Himself, His person, His character, what He commands and what He does. Anything outside of that is completely arbitrary. Every man doing what's right in his own eyes, meaning it's worthless. You have one opinion, she has another opinion, he has an opinion, she has an opinion, on you go. They're all just opinions. It's arbitrary. It's not truth. It's not right or wrong. It's just opinion. And so what is right or wrong? What is good or evil? God is good. God is right. That which is contrary to God What God does, what God commands, is wrong or evil. And that is the truth that we as Christians hold to. And so, if God sends an angel to say, Hagar, you need to go back to your mistress, then that is what's right. And we don't side against the angel and against God and for Hagar, the marginalized individual, from a marginalized people group, we don't go woke or liberal. We go biblical. We submit our hearts and our minds to the Word of God and the God of the Word. So, she answers and says, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. What? She wronged me. Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Listen, we will find God's greatest blessing when all things are in order. When we are where God wants us to be, we will find our greatest blessing. That doesn't mean it's the place we'd really like to be. Uh, Even as in the New Testament, Paul writes to a slave owner about a slave and says, receive him back. He doesn't say demand that he set him free, although he nearly does. 
He does say, receive him as a brother, because praise God, Onesimus, he's a brother. He's no longer an escaped slave. He's a brother returning to you. But Paul did say, hey, you need to go back. And he went back. And we don't know how that all worked out. And they're all going to be in heaven, right? It's, it's going to be glorious. That's an interesting relationship there. Peter talks about being submissive to your masters. In other words, Peter didn't say, hey, Jesus said to set everyone free. Turn our society upside down. Turn our whole economic structure upside down. Turn our whole agricultural structure upside down. You know, these were the workers that produced the food. No, he didn't say that. He, he did say, you owners, you masters, be kind. You know, treat your servants, your slaves, treat them right. And you slaves, you workers, uh, don't just obey your master when he's watching you as eye pleasers, but at all times for the glory of Christ. And, and so we need to receive what the Word of God says, and we need to apply it in our modern world and guard our hearts because there are all sorts of feminist sensitivities creeping into Christ's church. There are all sorts of woke sensitivities creeping into Christ's church. And we need to slay those sensitivities and be sensitive to the Word of God and the God of the Word and unbudging, unchanging morality. God is not so much concerned about your status under a government or under slavery as He is about your status under sin and death. And Christ came to save you from the latter, not the former. Now again, the consistent application of the Word of God, the law of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ to any culture in time tends to eradicate slavery. And that's what did affect the eradication of slavery, the church of Jesus Christ. And we rejoice in that. But be careful casting woke judgments, casting feminist judgments. In fact, don't be careful. <laughs> Repent of such, if such has creeped into your heart and mind. And so verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall be, uh, not be counted for multitude. And so she's still a servant. She's still, for all intents and purposes, a slave. Um, and yet she is going to be the, the mother of a whole people group. And so there are blessings even within that position beneath her mistress, Sarai. Verse 11, And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. He shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And so this is the nature of Ishmael. He, he's a, a true wild man. He, uh, he's not the son every mother hopes to have. <laughs> His hand should be against every man. He, he doesn't play well with others. And every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Verse 13, Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. You see, she's dealing with God. 
She's dealing with an angel of God. This angel is the angel of the Lord. This angel is a theophany, probably a Christophany, probably Christ himself. They're dealing with her. And verse 13, she called the name of the Lord, that's Yahweh. So this angel is Yahweh. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees. So Yahweh, this Christophany, Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate, is the God who sees. He is omniscient. And she recognizes that. And she submits herself unto him. She doesn't say, hey, that's a raw deal. You know, I want to be the first lady of the house. And if they're not going to allow that, I'm going to go, go find some other man who will let me be the first lady of that house. And I'll start my little people group over there. No, she submits herself to the one true God. And she rejoices even. You are the God who sees. Now, let me, let me encourage you. Ladies, um, one day if you're not married, you're going to be married. And you're going to be married to a man who's not perfect. Which is why you should get married very carefully with much wise counsel from godly men and women. <laughs> you ladies who are married, you've figured out by now, if it's been more than a few hours, you're married to a man who's not perfect. <laughs> And yet the call of God in your life is to submit unto Him as unto the Lord. Now, He is to love you as Christ loved the church. And it's our job as the church to exhort Him and help Him in that. And if He really gets off the rails, to pull Him back onto those rails. But this is God's basic design for every man and woman. The man is to lead in righteousness and provide and protect. And the woman is to follow in righteousness. And to submit unto Him as unto the Lord and to honor Him. And in that relationship, in those parameters, in that design, there will be the greatest earthly happiness. You'll, you'll find the greatest, sweetest relationship of your life to be that between you and your husband, you and your wife, as you embrace God's design. That's where the victory is. To whatever level, you know, will you be the, the mother of a whole people group? Will you be the mother of a wild man? Or a mild man. I don't know. But to whatever level of earthly you know, success the Lord has providentially decreed for you, you will find the greatest joy in His design. His design. Submitted unto God in His design in the role that He has prepared for you. And remember, ladies and men, this life is it's brief. It's brief, right? And I hope by submitting yourself to God's design, committing yourself to His plan, you will find great joy in that marital relationship. I do hope that. But in those hours where you have less joy, remember, this is temporary. Eternity is long. It's never ending. It's forever and ever and forever and ever and ever and ever. And in eternity, you will have perfect joy and perfect peace. And your husband will be perfected as well, though marriage is a bit different in heaven. We're not Mormons. And so praise God for his design. Praise God for his revelation of his design. She had a special revelation of God's design. Hey, Hagar, maid of Sarai, you need to return to your mistress. She had a special providential face-to-face encounter with God and a reminder 
of God's design for her life. You're not going to get that. What you have is Holy Scripture, inspired and errant and preserved, directly from Yahweh God, as if He was speaking to you face to face. And we need to embrace that. As men, embrace it, be the men of God that God would have us to be, walking in the light of the Word. As women, receiving the Word of God, walking in the light of the Word, and throwing off our rebel culture and its lies that would tell men that, hey, this is the plan for your life. This is where you're going to have success and fulfillment, right? It's all about sports. It's all about fun. It's all about you. It's all about women and illicit sexual relationships. It's all about these things. Um, Rather than being a godly man, a godly witness, a godly husband, when the Lord would give you a godly wife and a godly father who provides for wife and children, who rejoices in working hard and, and using his mind and body for the glory of God in the workplace and rising to whatever level of success God would allow for the glory of God. And then bringing home that provision to bless his family for the glory of God and to further the gospel of Jesus Christ in the earth. For the glory of God. And the same with the wife receiving God's plan as a woman walking in godliness according to the scriptures as a woman, which isn't the world's plan. The world tells women to be sex objects, to be the objects of men's lust. That's where you'll find your fulfillment. The Lord says, no, be modest. In fact, he has a, a word that's even beyond modest, shamefacedness. You'd, you'd be ashamed to be showing off all that which is only for your husband, present or future. And if you have a husband, it, it's not future, it's just present, right? Just to be clear. <laughs> Keep the one you've got. But the world has a whole other plan for women, and it's going to be fine, right? It's going to be fine. No, it doesn't. It's not fine. There's going to be rape. There, there's going to be abortion, murder. There's going to be heartache after heartache. The world's plan for women is terrible. Terrible. Don't think that uh, you know, feminism rescues you from you know, biblical Christian misogyny. No, feminism makes you a slave to men's lusts and your own. And so hold fast to the word of God and the God of the word and don't allow the world's morals and values to creep into your heart and mind. Submit yourself to Christ as if you ran into him out there in the wilderness directly. And he said, oh, by the way, this is my plan for you. You know, when people run into God, they fall down as if dead before him. When you open the word of God, fall down. God is speaking to you. Fall down before him. Receive the Word of God, inspired, inerrant, preserved, and authoritative today, just as she received it in her day, face to face. Verse 15, so Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Chapter 17. Have we, have we stepped on enough toes in our current world yet? Wait till this goes out on the internet. This will be great, right? <laughs> Chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and I'm, 
I will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face. See, I told you. I told you. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father to many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. And that's what it literally means, a father of a multitude or a great number. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant. What kind of covenant? An everlasting covenant. Is God done with the Jews? No. I will establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of, the, of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Look, if we believe God made an everlasting covenant with Israel, even if you want to, which is an error, I believe, say that Israel has become the church, then you must believe God made an everlasting covenant or an everlasting promise regarding the land of Canaan being the land of Israel forever. It's their land. God has deeded it to them forever. And so the Lord reestablishes His covenant with Abram, the covenant He first Established in chapter 12, we have the promise of a nation, and he is the father of many nations. We have the promise of the blessing, verse 6, exceedingly fruitful. We have the promise of a seed, verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant. And ultimately, we are part of that, not as Jews, but being grafted in through Jesus Christ, the seed, capital S, we are in this very covenant. And then this land promise here is part of the same covenantal promise, all one covenant with Abraham. Verse 8, also I will give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Verse 9, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh, your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he was born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant, and the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of the foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. I told you this was going to be controversial. And we're not just offending the women today, but the men too. Um, This is going to hurt, men. So the Lord has a covenant sign here. 
And the covenant sign is circumcision of the flesh, which is not redemptive. It doesn't save one's soul, uh, but it's a sign of what should happen to your heart, that your heart is circumcised or set aside for the Lord. It's purified. The fat is cut off it, so to speak, so that it might be pure and ready to serve the Lord entirely. This was also on a practical level a sign that set them apart from the other nations, a symbol that would set them apart all through the ages from the other nations of the earth, much like the dietary restrictions had their practical purpose in being clean foods versus unclean, and there are health benefits to the kosher diet, although I do enjoy many things that are not on that kosher diet. And we do so rightly because Peter received that sheet. But what we find here is that this circumcision set them aside like the dietary restrictions set them aside so they would be distinct from the peoples of the earth. And they would not easily, easily lose their cultural identity and more importantly than their cultural identity, their spiritual identity as children of the one true God covenant keepers with the one true God, the nation that God established his covenant with to be a light in the world, manifesting his glory to all of mankind. And so circumcision wasn't a redemptive act. It was a sign. It was a symbol of the spiritual work in the heart. And it was on a practical basis, useful for keeping them separate and apart and identifying those who were submitted unto Yahweh. It it says anyone who will not be circumcised, well, they're out. They're out. They're not submitted to Yahweh. And in a similar way, if we'll not be baptized, right, if we'll not make a public confession of Christ in baptism, then we're not really in. And there's there's a lot of sloppy, agape, you know, evangelical... Uh, goofiness going on where people can you know, profess Christ and, and it's all good and fine and they're taking communion and they're, it's, they're all in, you know, and, but they have not been baptized because they just, well, I never really wanted to do that. I just don't like water, you know. I, I just, I'm shy. It'd be embarrassing. Christ is your Lord. Christ is your King. Christ said, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so they are to be baptized, saying, this is who I am. Christ is my Lord. I am his doulos, his slave. He has purchased me with his blood. And I'm publicly proclaiming Christ as my Lord, as my Savior, me as his doulos. I'm publicly proclaiming the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one immersion, one God, three names, three persons in the Godhead. And then I rise up to do what? Out of the baptismal pool, out of the baptismal water, and lo, I'll be with you always, said Jesus. But no, no, wait. He said, teach them to observe all things that I've commanded. And so we're, we're being baptized, saying we are now children of God. We're being baptized, saying now through this symbol of having died with Christ and been resurrected again to newness of life to serve Christ, Um, We're proclaiming Christ as our Lord, and we're proclaiming our purpose, 
that we will now serve him. We want to learn to observe. And you get that too. You get some folks who get baptized because you know what? That's the box you're supposed to check. Kind of like the Jews treat circumcision. That's the box you're supposed to check. Now I'm good. I'm good. I was baptized. You have people putting faith in their baptism, but you know, learning to observe what he commanded. Forget that. Being the man of God, the woman of God, the child of God, the employer of God, the employee of God, being who God would have me to be, bothered to ever show up in church again. Forget that. I was baptized. Look, I think I got that paper somewhere. I'm good. No, you're not. The whole idea there was that you were, by the grace of God, born again, now indwelt with the Spirit of God, and you were following Jesus. And that was just the first step in publicly saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. He's my Lord and Master, and I am His servant, and I'm going to learn to observe what He's commanded. And so, if your life is denying that reality, then the baptism is mute. If a Jew's life in the Old Testament, denied the reality of Yahweh being their Lord, then that circumcision is immaterial. It is a symbol of what spiritually should take place in them. Through the power of the Spirit of God, as members of God's covenant, through faith, Salvation has always been through faith, as Abraham had faith accounted to him for righteousness long before what? Long before this circumcision. The Jewish apocryphal book of Jubilees, so this is from our Jewish friends and forefathers, it says this, This law is for all generations forever, and there is no circumcision of the time and no passing over one day out of the eight days, for it is an eternal ordinance ordained and written on the heavenly tables, and everyone that is born, the flesh of whose foreskin is not circumcised on the eighth day, belongs not to the children of the covenant, which the Lord made with Abraham, for he belongs to the children of destruction, nor is there moreover any sign of him that he is the Lord's, but he is destined to be destroyed and slain from the earth. And so if you miss circumcision on the eighth day, you're done. You're done. Might be better to be a girl. (laughs) That is legalism. That's not biblical. That's extra biblical. Rabbi Menachem, in his commentary in the book of Moses, said this, Our rabbins, or rabbis, have said that no circumcised man will ever see hell. And so if you're circumcised, no hell for you. That's it. That's it. The uh, Jalkut Rubim, another Hebrew source, taught that, quote, circumcision saves from hell. The Midrash Milam says that God, quote, swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. The, again, Hebrew book of Adath Jizak taught that, quote, Abraham sits before the gate of hell and does not allow that any circumcised Israelite should enter there. So he's actually at the gate. Nope, not coming here. Nonsense. God determines who goes to heaven or hell. And it's not based upon some outward mutilation of the flesh. Um, It's based upon the inward 
change through the Holy Spirit regenerating you, bringing you from death to life. It's based upon whether you, by the grace of God, have confessed Yahweh as Lord, Old Testament style in the Old Testament era, and New Testament style confessing Jesus Christ as your Lord. As Romans 10.9 says, if anyone will confess Jesus Christ as Lord, they are saved. Baptism does not save. Communion does not save. None of these things save. And so certainly, circumcision did not save. For the Lord said to Abram that his faith was accounted to him as righteousness. Long before, I believe it was 14 years before this circumcision. And so we stand fast there. Look with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 4. We'll be back to Genesis 17, I I hope. Once you turn to the New Testament, sometimes it's hard to go back. Uh, But here we are in Romans chapter 4. And uh, who wrote Romans? The Apostle Paul. An Israelite of Israelite, a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a a true legalist before he was saved. But before he was saved, he did what? Persecuted the church, sought their destruction. In fact, before he was saved, he officiated over the martyrdom, over the murder of Stephen, the evangelist. And so a radical redemption takes place in Paul's life. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me, said Jesus? And Lord, who are you? And he met him there on that fateful road, on that fateful day, and came to repentance and faith and became a radical preacher of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But here in chapter 4 of Romans, in verse One, it says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? What is circumcision in? It's in the flesh. Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And so Paul asserts that anyone who's taking the Old Testament and saying, look, here's a system of rules, righteousness, right? A system of works, righteousness. They're wrong. And they're not just a little wrong. Look to verse 4. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. If you try to be saved through your works, you're not adding to grace. God doesn't say, well, that's very good. You believed upon my son, Jesus. You have faith in him. Plus, you've done these works and put some faith in these works too. Bonus points, right? Bonus. No, it's not bonus at all. You either have faith in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, trusting in his finished work upon the cross, his to tell us die, it is finished, or you have none of Christ and you have not a drop of grace. It's not enough to have faith. Oh, there's all sorts of faith out there. And lots of folks talk about faith in Jesus. Yes, faith in Jesus. It must actually be faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, or you have nullified grace. Those works are counted against you, and you have none of Christ. Look to verse 9, Romans Chapter 4, verse 9, does this blessedness, 
then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Paul's kind of stuck on that point. (laughs) Faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Verse 10. How then was it accounted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised. So he received the sign of circumcision. It's a sign. A sign. A sign of what? A sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be a father of all who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. So what is baptism? It's a sign of the seal of your salvation. It's a sign of the seal of your salvation through faith alone. That's what circumcision is. And so when our Reformed brethren want to say that baptism is something that children should not participate in, but have done to them. Of course, they're not actually talking about baptism. They're talking about sprinkling, not immersion. But when they uphold paedo-baptism and say, because in the Old Testament, boys were to be circumcised on the eighth day, in the New Testament, baby boys and girls should be baptized in their infancy, perhaps even on the eighth day, if we're going to model that exactly. And that this is what God has called us to do. But notice notice here that he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. In the New Testament, there is never a command to baptize infants. The command is to baptize believers, to baptize followers of Jesus Christ. And the only reference to children being baptized is when it says, like in the book of Acts, when it says, and their whole household. And it doesn't say, including, you know, baby Susie Q, who was six months. It says their whole household, which then I assume the whole household was made up of people who are old enough to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And thus be baptized as believers in Jesus Christ. When the eunuch is asked by the evangelist, or excuse me, when the eunuch asks the evangelist, see here is water, what keeps me from being baptized, what does the evangelist say? Nothing, if you believe with your whole heart. And so the clear command, the clear design, uh, both in narrative text and didactic text in the New Testament for baptism is for believing men and women, boys and girls who clearly understand God, who He is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who they are, a sinner, and who by the grace of God have come to repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. And that baptism is an expression of the faith that has already saved them, a seal, it's a sign, an evidence, it's a public declaration, but that baptism does not save them. 
That water does not wash away their sins. The blood of the Lamb washes away their sin by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone are we saved. Continuing in Romans chapter 4, verse 11, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe. Thus we can call Abraham our father, spiritually speaking, because he was saved by faith alone, not faith and circumcision, not faith in Jewish dietary Uh, restrictions, not faith and temple attendance or tabernacle attendance before that. Faith alone. None of that was even commanded by God yet when Abraham was saved. And so he is our spiritual father if we believe that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while uncircumcised. The promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The righteousness of faith, not law. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made, is made void, and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, and not only to those who are of the law, but to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And as, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who believed God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. How is Abraham the father of many nations in the fullest sense? Through Jesus Christ and every tongue, tribe, and nation confessing Jesus Christ as Lord in glory to come. Turn with me, if you will, to Galatians chapter 3, just to drive this home a bit. Galatians chapter 3. And it opens up pretty strong here in verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians. That's offensive, Paul. You can't talk that way. Why would he speak with such strong language? Because they were leaving the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ and returning to law. Now, they, they didn't say, hey, we don't want grace and we don't want Jesus anymore and we reject faith in Jesus. They didn't say that at all. No, we want grace. We got that. Uh, We want Jesus, we got him, and yep, we're all on board with faith, but we're going to add some works in here too. So it's grace plus faith plus our works equals salvation. That's Judaizing, and Paul comes to the door, you remember in chapter 1, pretty violently pronouncing the anathema of God twice on anyone, anyone, whether even he himself or an angel from heaven or anyone brings another gospel, which is not another that the anathema, the judgment of God, be upon them. Let them be damned. And so here in chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? 
And so remember, in the early church, the, the Lord was showing that this is for every tribe, tongue, and nation, and not just the Jews, through this radical manifestation of the Holy Spirit of God, where they're receiving the Spirit, and they're speaking in these unknown languages. They're receiving the Spirit, and they've got these, these spirit, uh, spiritual gifts that are undeniable miracles. Prophetic gifts, healing, actual languages, missionary gifts of languages to proclaim the glories of God. And so this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was vain? In other words, you began in the Spirit. You began like Abraham, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, sans, without circumcision or any other law. The law of Moses hadn't even been given in Abraham's day, right? It didn't exist. And so, why now are you adding laws? Verse 4, have you suffered so many things in vain, and indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That was the heart of of his argument in Romans. That's the heart of his argument here in Galatians. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him to righteousness. Hold fast to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Yahweh alone, specifically Jesus Christ, the one mediator between God and men. That is our faith. That is the faith. Once for all delivered to the saints, Old and New Testament. So again, verse 7 or verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of the faith are sons of Abraham. Only those who are of the faith are sons of Abraham. And so if you come with faith in Jesus plus faith in your papal pope decree, right? If you come with faith in Jesus plus faith in your bread that you believe to be the transubstantiated body of Christ you're eating for justification, a system of works righteousness. If you come with faith in Jesus plus your cup, which you believe to be the actual transubstantiated blood of Christ that you're drinking for righteousness. If you believe in Jesus, have faith in Jesus, but you trust in the fact that as an infant, a priest sprinkled you with a bit of water and that supposedly cleansed you of original sin and made you a member of the universal church of God born again from above. All these things nullify grace. All these things mean you don't actually believe in Jesus in the biblical salvific sense. And you're not a child of Abraham. Worse, you're not a child of God. Verse 7 or verse 6, again, then 7, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of the faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Who are the sons of Abraham? Oh, those that are circumcised on the eighth day. Didn't you read the rabbis? No. 
The sons of Abraham are those who have faith, the same faith that Abraham had, the same faith that saved him. Verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. That was one of the pivotal verses in Martin Luther's life that saved his soul. The just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith but the man who does them shall live by them. Verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through him. Verse 21, Galatians 3.21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the Scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The promise, what promise? Redemption, salvation, children of Abraham, becoming part of the new covenant. Verse 23 But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, therefore neither Jew nor Greek There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, this mention of baptism here is not saying that the baptism saves you. It's Christ who saves you. Theologians debate, commentators debate whether this is speaking of the spiritual baptism that the Holy Spirit does in you or the water baptism, which again is the symbol of what the Spirit has done coming into you, having regenerated you, indwelling you, uniting you to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's what the Spirit of God does. That's what Romans 6 speaks of when it talks about being baptized in Christ. And the water baptism is just the picture thereof. It's not the power of salvation. Oh, we've got to get a little more Galatians. Chapter 5. Chapter 5. Verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. How important is this? If you become circumcised, Christ profits you nothing. If you add to Christ any work, Christ profits you nothing. It's salvation by grace alone and faith alone. In Christ alone, or it's no salvation at all. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be 
entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. And saints, there we stand against every legalistic system of works righteousness, against every work that anyone would dare add to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Final word. Jesus upon the cross hanging between God, holy, 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 and mankind, sinful, taking upon himself the sins of an unknown, unknown to us, number of men and women, and paying the actual debt for those actual sins, for those actual sinners in full, pronounced to telestai. It is finished. He took the fullness of eternal wrath, the fullness of an eternity's hell on their behalf, and said, It is finished. How dare I? How dare you? How dare anyone? How dare the Pope? How dare a priest? How dare anyone say, but wait. Let me add this. Let me add my sacrament. Let me add my baptism. Let me add my candle lighting. Let me add my prayers to Mary or other dead so-called saints. Let me add my church attendance. Let me add my tithing. Let me add my dietary restrictions, which Galatians deals with as well. Let me add my circumcision. Any addition to Christ is damning. You have become estranged from Christ. You attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. You're outside of grace. You're outside of Christ. And your faith is not the faith of Abraham, the faith that saves, sands law, without law of any kind. And there we stand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this pivotal truth born out of Genesis 16 and 17. We thank you, Father, for clarity that your word provides if we'll just study to show ourselves approved. May we not, Father, become foolish like the Galatian church before us, and be led astray by Judaizers, denying Christ, denying His tetelestai, denying the saving faith of Abraham. Faith alone. We pray it in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen.